At the Cryptid Keeper podcast, we love to laugh at the darkness, but we would never laugh at the rich cultures that explore it, or the unique cultural significance of the creatures explored. The jokes within are on no one but us. We encourage additional research on the subjects covered here, and hope that a comedy podcast is not your primary source of information. cryptid keeper podcast the podcast for cryptids and their keepers that's us and if you're listening it's you too i'm alex flanagan and i'm addison peacock and welcome to the bright brilliant future that is 2020 it's not the future for anybody who's listening to this now because it is impossible to listen to this from the past but here we are anyway it is either the present or it is the past damn you're right that's right. <laughs> Man, some really... The future doesn't exist. <laughs> There's no such thing as the future. Anyone who tells you that there is, is lying. Well, I mean, the future exists only in a theoretical sense, No, right? listen, like, this past... is what they won't tell you. Birds aren't real, invented by the government to spy on you. The future is not real, invented by the government to sell you medicine. <laughs> Alex! <laughs> Yes. You took that to a very literal direction. (laughs) You gotta live in the present because the present is the only thing that's real. The past doesn't exist. Let the past die, kill it if you have to. (laughs) The government has been killing the past since day one, which doesn't exist anymore. There is no day one. Oh my god. (laughs) I was so stressed out. I was trying to go for more of like a mindfulness thing, but you know what? I'll I'll take it. The only mindfulness that matters to me is watchfulness. You gotta you gotta keep a level eye out there because everybody's trying to lie to you. Twenty twenty is the year we all become truthers. Ah! <laughs> oh my god! I'm a time truther. Oh my god! Who's willing to join me in my bold? How did stance? I work on this show with you for two years and not know this? I'm sorry. To what? Don't say that word around me. <laughs> all those times alex that i said oh i'll see you tomorrow what did you think what were you thinking i was wondering if i would be able to get past that for the sake of our friends oh no no i was wondering if i would be able to get present that darn it (laughs) you've infected me poisoned my mind anyway i apologize for all of that i don't know what's happening no i don't and i never will and i didn't and you can't prove that i did Because the historical record isn't real. It's been destroyed. History is written by the victors. The victor will always be me because I win because I'm smart enough to outsmart time. Anyway, so this is my episode, which means I can hold you hostage for as long as I like with the intro before I get around to the actual cryptid. This is a podcast about if you're new... (laughs) And may God have mercy on your soul. And uh, this is a podcast about folklore, cryptids, monsters, and all the things in between and variations upon that theme. If you're new, do me a favor. Pause right now. Go listen to literally any other episode and then come back. This doesn't seem like the most charitable introduction for either us or you. So start with The Beast of Bray Road. That one's great. People seem to really like the Santa Claus episode. Totsilverm. Yeah, yeah, Totsilverm was great. Kelpie is a really good one. Anything except this. Just don't do this. This episode is apocryphal. I'm, I'm going ahead and saying it now. This episode was never made. 
You can't prove that <laughs> was it was. <laughs> you can't prove that it was. This episode stops existing the moment that we turn off the microphones and no one will be able to convince me that it ever happened. <laughs> that is the thing about making this podcast, though, honestly, is people will, like, never in, like, a bad way, but people will reach out about, like, a specific thing that was said in, like, episode 25 or something and i have to just take their word for it because i don't remember oh my gosh yeah you could literally like if you've ever quoted a joke from the podcast at me with the exception of american werewolf in london to american werewolf in london in america if you've ever quoted a joke from this podcast at me i have just gone (laughs) yeah and i have no idea what you're talking about the show stops existing the second we turn off the microphones and i'm so sorry sometimes before that sometimes the show denatures well before we get to that point it has a half-life of about 30 minutes. This one had a half-life of approximately three seconds after the (laughs) microphone went on. Anyway, all this talk about, like, the past and other episodes is actually uh, surprisingly salient and deeply relevant because um, I thought that the best way to kick off the new year, to start 2020, to sort of clean slate everything, would be actually to do uh, the redux of a lost episode. (gasps) Oh my god, Alex! So um, I was thinking about like what energy I wanted to bring into the new year, and it's going to get slightly personal for just half a second, but um, to just sort of break this ice right now. Um, today's episode is going to be about the Banshee. We love her. Which I do love. I love the Banshee. The Banshee is a wonderful cryptid. And if you have been a long time listener, then you probably have like a weird residual memory of a Banshee episode already existing. I'm not going to gaslight you. Yes, you yeah. have probably heard a Banshee episode before. It no longer exists. It is not in the podcast record. Please do not go looking for it. You will not find it. And I would not like for you to do so. That episode has been permanently deleted from the backlog of the show. Um, for some personal reasons. And so every so often we'll get a message from somebody asking like, hey, I can't find episode whatever, number five, I think. I think it's six. Six. I can't find episode five or six or whatever. Um, and they'll ask about it. Um, please stop doing that. <laughs> it's it's very well-meaning, but it, totally we get it. We are so glad you want to listen to the show. That episode no longer exists. Today, I'm going to revisit it for you. I wanted to take some time to let that you know, be where it needed to be. Um, but going into 2020, I was thinking like, you know, what are some things I want to do? And I wanted to clear this slate. I wanted to redo this episode. I wanted to get another crack at it. And um, I'm really excited to revisit the Banshee. And I hope that the new year for you is a time where you feel like you can go back and maybe reclaim things that were lost to you, or maybe, you know, take another whack at something that brings you a lot of joy or something that has been sullied for you in some way and you would like to take that energy back for yourself. So despite how weird the intro of this episode was, I'm actually very excited to get to talk about this cryptid today because it's one that I really, really love. And it's one that I've been uh, sad for a while that we haven't been able to to get out there in the canon. So here it is. This is uh, Banshee's take two. And for all intents and purposes, this is the only Crypto Keeper Banshee episode that matters. And it's literally the only one that exists. <laughs> it is now the only one that exists, yes. Take it away. Now, I, this is, this is going to be a little difficult because I know that you already know information about the Banshee. And I know that you have even heard from me information about the Banshee before. <laughs> right. Um, so it, we're not going to do the thing where you have to pretend like you don't know any of this information. No, <laughs> I also... But also we've, like... Not quite as deep as you, but I also spend quite a lot of time in Irish folklore land, so even prior to the recording of the initial episode, I did have a good deal of information about the Banshee, but... Totally. But for one, it's been over a hundred episodes since then, and I don't know about you, I learn a lot on this show, I definitely do not remember all of it. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> but also, uh, today I'm gonna take a slightly different angle on it. So I'm gonna talk to you about the Banshee. Then I'm also gonna talk to you about the Banshee's sister. She has... Who you may not have heard of. I... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Laninshi. One more time? Laninshi. Laninshi. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're gonna she talk about... She has a sister. She has a sister. And her sister is... Uh, somewhat more nefarious, somewhat more mysterious, and actually has an extant writing career that I would love to inform you oh of. Oh my god. So. Oh my god. <laughs> so I think this will be cool. This is going to be a slightly new take on it. So we will have some new original information, and we'll also revisit some of the basics with a very nostalgic, old-school Crypto Keeper flair. So um, if this is your first episode, welcome. You're going to get a little bit of a taste of sort of what the show used to be, as well as some of what it's evolved into over time. So I'm excited for it. Let's talk. Yes. So the Banshee is a female spirit-like creature in Irish mythology, usually seen as an omen of death and a messenger from the underworld. That's sort of the the gist of it. Now, I think everybody knows banshees, screaming, death, like those sort of three things in very close association. And for all intents and purposes in pop culture, that is true. But the actual origin of like what the banshee is, where she comes from, why she do that, those are all very interesting things that I would love to talk about. And there is sort of like with a lot of cryptids that come more from a um, folkloric standpoint, there is a lot of threads here that have gotten woven into this tapestry of sort of what the Banshee has ended up becoming. There's an element of, you know, old stories. There's an element of oral history. There's an element of like cultural practices that got woven into this sort of ghostly unusual. Um, and there's also barn owls, you know, because every great mm -hmm. cryptid story has a barn owl that goes with it. Honestly, it really does. So basically in legend, a Banshee is a fairy woman. She is one of the fair folk who begins to wail if someone is about to die. In Scottish Gaelic mythology, she's known as, again, the Banshee. It's just spelled differently. Or Oh, I remember this. Yeah, this the was the whole spelling. thing. There are like three or four different spellings. So when you're reading it, it looks like she has a lot of different names. They're all just pronounced Banshee. Don't worry about it. Um, and she's seen washing the blood-stained clothes or armor of those who are about to die. So in Scottish lore, she's generally seen as like a washerwoman type, and she's washing the clothes or washing the armor of those who are about to be deceased. In Irish Gaelic mythology, she sometimes is wearing the clothes of those about to die. Um, oh. Yeah, which is a another wild thing. But in Irish mythology too, she also has like a few different appearances, and there is some discrepancy over whether like those are different banshees or whether those are different aspects of the banshee in which she can appear there is a lot of crossover with the like um maiden mother crone i was about imagery the iconography absolutely of the morrigan so we'll get into that a little bit and that's all really fascinating stuff if you don't know any of it um stop me if there's anything that needs to be reiterated because i know that you and i both know more about it than i may accidentally assume other people do there have been sightings of banshees even as recently as 1948 so I couldn't really find any after that. A lot of them are primarily historical, um, with the exception of maybe a few like Reddit things or like weird oral history stories and anecdotes here and there. Um, but there are similar beings also found in Welsh, Norse, and United States folklore. Now the United States folklore part actually does have an explanation to it. Welsh, I'm assuming, is just some crossover with like the other Gaelic mythologies of the area. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure why it comes up in Norse mythology. Other than that, I know there is a lot of um, like 
heraldry and death imagery associated with like this idea of predestination in terms of the afterlife. So that's my only assumption. There are a lot of like specifically female figures in Norse mythology. Absolutely. Yeah. And even just similar imagery between, you know, Norse and Celtic, like paganism. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if, if those roots are entwined a little bit further back. I mean, there's Viking crossover, literally Vikings and Ireland have a whole mm-hmm. history. Anyway, that's but this isn't a history podcast. This isn't a Viking history We're podcast. not here to talk about real things that happened. Vikings not in my show. What? <laughs> okay. So the Banshee's uh, scream or wail is associated with death. That scream is yes. actually has a technical term. It's called keening. Yes. Mm-hmm. So her scream it's, it's, is referred to as a keen, which is spelled C-A-O-I-N-E. That is not how I thought that was spelled. Initially, mm. or, you know, anglicized. That's spelled K-E-E-N-I-N-G, keening. Mm-hmm. It's said that a banshee's cry predicts the death of a member, but specifically of one of Ireland's five major families. The O'Grady's, the O'Neill's, the O'Brien's, the O'Connor's, or the Kavanaugh's. They didn't get an O. They did not. No, not the O'Kavanaugh's. We don't talk about the O'Kavanaugh's. So that's an interesting thing. You're like each family had a banshee <laughs> or like oh. a, a an associated group of banshees, but they were inherited basically. So as families started like mingling the bloodlines as it were and intermarrying and creating these lineages, the banshees followed. So that's how you actually ended up with banshees and banshee lore in the United States. As Irish families started coming over, the banshees followed them. Right. Like both they literally were all on the boat and together. Yeah. Well, exactly. And I'm sure that there were, was keening on the boat, but the stories followed them. But then also, if stories are to be believed, the actual creatures themselves also came over because they're tied to the family, mm-hmm. and they knew it would be rough over here. They really did. They saw this coming before we did. Yeah, right. Although, don't get it twisted. Some banshees did stay behind at their initial family estates. Well, of course, because not everyone came over. Yeah, banshees are not like a major export of Ireland. Don't worry. Various versions of the banshee have been described. In terms of major forms, we usually get either like a younger woman with long red hair and very pale skin. Or we get this older woman with, like, stringy gray hair and rotten teeth and fiery red eyes, which is such a powerful image. Oh, wow. She is frequently depicted, no matter what form she's in, with a comb in her hair. And this has actually led to a Gaelic superstition, specifically an Irish Gaelic superstition, that finding a comb on the ground is considered bad luck because it's thought that it was left behind by the banshee. And she was obviously there with portents of doom. Right, of course. So finding a comb is evidence... Not just that a fairy was there, but that a fairy specifically responsible for telling people a bad thing was going to happen was there. Ergo, finding a comb means something bad is going to happen soon. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Why do they have a comb in their hair? Do we know? Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's... I'm assuming it's not like a like a comb you would use to like part and and brush out your hair no, and then no, go on I, your I way. I'm assuming it's, it's more of like a decorative. It's the little. It's like the uh, gifts of the magi comb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the pretty little. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just imagining. I think my my question more comes from like I can understand how that fits into the aesthetic of the the younger one. Uh huh. It's an interesting choice for a frightening old woman with glowing red eyes. I, I'm sort of envisioning like um, the hair pulled back in a bun and the comb is what's keeping it there. Mm, you know okay. what I mean? Like that, that yes. specific sort of, not like a chignon, but that, that kind of hairstyle where the comb is integral to the structural integrity of of the hair being <laughs> right. pulled back. Um, 
I, I would think that would be very common, especially if your hair were in some sort of like braid or knot work. Mm-hmm. I'm truly just when you talk about the younger version of the of the banshee, I'm truly just imagining any one of the women from Celtic Women. Oh, literally, yeah, they're probably all banshees. The traveling jennies are for sure banshees. Oh my god, the Wayland jennies are my favorite. Yeah, they're absolutely banshees. It's in their name. Exactly, they're keening. Wailing. The wailing jennies. They're wailing, they're keening, they're doing their thing. Oh, I love them. I That's its own, I'm not going to go down a weird, like, emotional talk about um, Irish music. Celtic but. women may or may not all be banshees, but every single member of the of the wailing jennies is a banshee. Absolutely. Anyway, um, we already talked about this idea of the, the banshee either shape-shifting or it being different banshees. I like to think of it being the idea of, like, the banshees presenting in different aspects as it becomes relevant, um, because I liked that I, I like that idea in general of mm-hmm. the the triple goddess and that being a, an ability that the banshee has to present in whatever way seems fit to the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a variant of the banshee which would be the I think it's <laughs> I think it's Ban Nye. Um, it's the sort of Scottish Gaelic version, which is it, it's more common in Scotland, and it's the like the washerwoman. Yes. Type. Uh, anyway, she's said to be the ghost of a woman who died during childbirth and would be seen wearing the clothes of the person about to die. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. That one is really, that one is specifically very interesting to me because I'm imagining all the variations that can take. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it's it's wild to think of, like, someone who died during childbirth that, like, then their responsibility is to sort of complete that cycle like there's something really kind mm-hmm. of poetic but dark about that oh yeah no my brain has already gone to some very dark somber places with imagining like mm-hmm. the sign- what it would mean to see that figure yeah in for example like a military uniform or right to see her i'm so sorry i'll put lots of content warnings on this episode but dressed like a little girl Oh, God, yeah. Anyway, sorry, it's an inherently mournful creature to talk about because it's she's inexorably linked with mm-hmm. death, so it's... Um, yeah, so you mentioned this military uniform thing, and that's kind mm-hmm. of an interesting transition. So the origin of the Banshee story traces back probably to around the early 8th century, and it's believed they were based on an old Irish tradition where women would sing a lament to signify... Mm-hmm you know, the the death of someone, probably usually in their family or in their close-knit circle. And that mm-hmm. tradition was also referred to as keening. So mm-hmm. the Banshee's keening is named after this funereal lament that would be sung. Mm-hmm. A lot of keeners would accept alcohol as payment. So like you would have someone come to be a keener at this funeral and you would probably pay them in alcohol if that's what you had on hand because you were probably Mm -hmm. strapped financially speaking, what with a major member of your family just having passed away. And the church frowned upon this payment in alcohol, right? So it's this interesting sort of thing then where since the church frowned upon it, there's been speculation that the Keeners were then punished in the eyes of God, and that's why they became Banshees. So it's not just this idea of, like, oh, there's a similarity between, like, a real-life woman who sings a sad song at a funeral and, like, this ghost, so we're going to name them after each other. Like, the thought is that these spirits actually became Banshees and continued their keening in death. Oh, my God. All just for being paid to mourn. Yeah, right? With what people had at the time. Now, we're not going to unpack all that on here. 
<laughs> no, I will. Uh, if 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 you if you'll allow me to take a brief tangent, please do. Um, specifically, uh, something that is 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 new is since since we initially had a conversation about banshees, um, I was so struck in talking about like the association between specifically women and this wailing and this collective like almost performative mourning mm-hmm. and um the over the summer I saw the film Midsummer and there was a lot of great discussion about the movie I won't call it a perfect film in any way I will say a lot of things about it really moved me and this is not a spoiler I will keep this as vague as possible but there's a sequence in Midsummer where the protagonist is racked with grief over something she has seen and all of the women of the town sit around with her and hold her face and and echo her crying back at her. And it's not a mocking thing. It's not like a any kind of it's not anything sinister. It is like just like a resonance. This like share this like echoing empathy. Like we are grieving together. We are hurting together. I'm literally tearing it. That scene that scene moved me mm-hmm. very intensely. And and it and it's I can't help but think about it when you talk about the Keening and you talk about the Banshees. Yeah. The thing that I always think about, um, and this is just, you know, proving our varied and distinct film references. I always (laughs) think of the scene with Eowyn in the Lord of the Rings films where Mm -hmm. she, uh, and this may be just from the extended versions. I don't remember if it's in the theatrical release or not, but there's a scene where Eowyn um, sings at her brother's funeral. And it's just this really, really like, raw sort of primitive is a terrible word because it's just a horrible word in general that's loaded in all the wrong ways but that's the word that comes to mind like this song is really less of a song and more of just a a keening it's it's this cry of like mournfulness and it's very ceremonial and it's very Mm -hmm. like reverent and it's kind of beautiful i love i love that i i remember what you're talking about it's been quite a long time since i've seen those films but mm-hmm. particularly you see often in very female depictions of grief, this sort of... Yeah, absolutely. And, and I will say again, not no. this is not a spoiler about this, the, the film, but in Midsummer it is almost like a song and something that persists throughout the film. It is a film about loss. It is a film about, about grief. Uh, is the protagonist's... The protagonist, when she cries, it, it's, it isn't... It, it's a wail. Mm-hmm. And... Obviously, it's not quite the same. I won't say Swedish mythology is the same as as, as all like Norse mythology, but you mentioned the banshee carrying right. over into Norse mythology, and I can't help but sort of think about that and how that imagery bleeds together and how... Well, and what's interesting is that um, in my reference as well, in, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, Eowyn is a member of the Nation of Rohan and, and the Rohirrim, and they're all very inspired in Tolkien's writing by, like, the, the Nordic influence and, like, mm-hmm. very, very old English sort of, like, this is, you know, a, a, a war-stricken horse country where the women are shield maidens, and you know, it's really, really fascinating. Um, but that mm-hmm. influence is very prevalent in the the structuring of their society. So that was another connection I was thinking of: is this idea that you know it's this this Gaelic idea and this Gaelic concept, but it is that very strong cultural foothold in in that sort of Norse land as well. So that's that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the realm, as it were. Honestly, uh, any opportunity I have to talk about that particular moment in Midsummer, I will bring it up. But it did. That was all I could think about uh, when you Mm -hmm. were talking about, like, the idea of there being a whole career path that was essentially grieving for a person or a tragedy that has nothing to do with you. And sharing in that for the sake of, I would say, catharsis, I would say comfort almost to the family. Uh, 
that empathy um that that's really that hits that hits home for me i don't know it's fascinating isn't it and especially when you consider like mm-hmm. not to get too speculative although like literally this that i don't i'm sorry if you came to this show and you wanted anything other than speculation i don't know what to tell you <laughs> i just literally <laughs> don't i'm sorry this is what we have to offer um but you know if that was a career path that was available primarily to people who would agree to work solely for alcohol that makes me think that they mm-hmm. you know probably couldn't afford to be too picky which implies to me that these people who were in the business of grieving probably had a lot that they needed to grieve anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like these were probably women in hard circumstances and maybe women who had already suffered several like deaths in their own close circle that had left them bereft and in a position where, you know, professional griever was the best they could do for themselves. And they certainly Mm -hmm. had like, you know, the emotional basis to offer that. It's this, you you find, you. I, I believe that's not something you fall into unless you have a deep well of sadness. I would think not, yeah. From. There are basically two alternatives. The one is that, like, you are actually extremely well-adjusted and emotionally healthy, and you have the, the space to do that, which I find unlikely in 8th century, <laughs> you know, Gaelic culture. Um, right. I think the more likely is that you have experienced a wealth of bad things, and processing them loudly for payment is a viable option for you one of the better options available yeah probably and take from that what you will yeah Uh, one of the most famous banshee sightings or encounters Mm -hmm. as it were is somewhat notable in 1437 king james the first of scotland was approached by an irish seeress or a banshee she probably was a keener who foretold his murder at the instigation of the Earl of Atoll, I think. Uh, one of my sources cites this as an example of the Banshee in human form. I don't know that that's true, but the interesting thing about that is he was murdered soon after he report, like after he was approached by this individual. Not by the individual, but basically, right. like, you know, this person came to him and in very Caesarian fashion was like, beware the Earl or whatever. And then he was murdered very shortly thereafter. By the Earl or whatever? Uh, I don't think it was by the Earl. I think it was, like, in a a, a conflict mm-hmm. um, that was probably instigated by the Earl. Mm-hmm. Trying to get a handle on how accurate our, our gal's per- prediction was. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I don't have the text of the actual prediction itself. No, of I just course, I, the, of the general like sort of oral history is like, oh, like a crazy Irish woman told King James he was going to die, and then he did. Mm-hmm. You know, and that one's interesting because as far as you've told me so far, as far as you've told me so far is what I just said. Mm-hmm. Words, the banshee doesn't give <laughs> that cohesive of a warning. Not really. This was a um, this was a human. It's believed. So I think it's more of just like a, this practice, this, um, this experience in the culture has been around for a long time. Um, this idea of like an Irish, a figure of an Irish mm -hmm. woman who predicts a death. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, in addition to her, her forms as the, uh, the maiden or the crone, the banshee can also appear Mm -hmm. in a variety of animal forms. Tell me about the animal uh, yeah, forms. Yeah, the, the primary ones are a hooded crow, a stoat, a hare, or a weasel, which are all animals that are associated in Ireland and Irish pagan practice with witchcraft. Um, some of them actually are iterations of the Morrigan herself. For example, the crow specifically is a, is a symbol of the Morrigan. 
Now, really quick, Alex, just because um, that's uh, you've dropped the phrase the morgue in a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, that might be something you want to expand upon just Thank a little you. bit. Thank you. Yes, no, excellent point. So the Morrigan is um, a figure from Gaelic mythology, specifically Irish Gaelic. She's very popular in neo-paganism. So for people who practice like a form of Gaelic polytheism or who are modern practitioners of a branch of witchcraft that derives from Celtic origin, she's very, very popular iconography for them. She's mainly associated as being like the war goddess or the fate goddess of mm-hmm. Irish Gaelic mythology, uh, which makes her a really interesting association with the Banshee because like foretelling doom is, is one of her gifts. But she very frequently appears as the crow. So the crow is sort of her symbol, mm. um, much in the way that you would associate like Athena, the war goddess with the owl, which is another interesting thing. And we'll mm-hmm. come back to that actually. Uh, Morrigan would be associated with the crow. So whenever you would see a crow, if you were a practitioner of this faith, or if you were familiar with the, the myth of the Morrigan, that would be your immediate thought it would be like, oh, a crow, this is a symbol of the Morrigan, like this is a sign. Mm-hmm. She is again, primarily like a war goddess, but she also, she has this, this aspect to her of being, she's sometimes referred to as the triple goddess. And that's also like a slightly different concept, but there's a lot of crossover with the Morrigan. And so there's this idea of the mother of the maiden and the crone, this like shape-shifting concept. Yeah. It's sort of, um, regarded as something of like a uh, an old faith or pagan holy trinity of womanhood yeah yeah exactly it's mm-hmm. it's the three stages of a woman's life yeah and it and it pops up in a lot of uh, a lot of iconography with the morgan and some yeah. other figures and i it's the only reason i jumped into that immediately is because i started reading about specifically that that trinity the mother maiden crone uh when i was pretty young and I got very interested in it. And so that's... It's really popular. And it's especially... Um, it's something that's really, really popular with a... I hesitate to say Wicca because I'm not familiar with Wicca as a practice. I know that Wicca is very specific. Like there are rites and rituals and things that have to be in place for a witchcraft practice to be considered Wicca. So the broader term being witchcraft. Um, it's a very popular image within that form because it's um, an inherently positive image of femininity, this idea that no matter which of these stages you're in or no matter what role you are serving, like there is still a, there's something sacred about that. There's something wonderful about it. And if that's empowering to you, I love it. Um, Now, I don't want to get away from that conversation without saying that like, obviously, womanhood is not defined just by being a maiden, a mother, or a crone. There are a lot of different ways to be a woman, and all of them are wonderful, and you do not have to have even reproductive capacity or a body that was assigned female at birth in order to have that sacred feminine aspect to you. For a lot of people who are, like, transgender or non-binary practitioners of witchcraft, or for male practitioners of witchcraft, or um, even uh, queer cis women often find sort of a disconnect with that aspect of the triple goddess or of other, like, sacred feminine practices because it can be kind of exclusionary and there is something that's kind of difficult about you know finding the inherent sacral nature of like fertility goddesses which are Mm -hmm. very popular in in old mythologies as Um, somebody who like obviously i can't I, i i can't speak to this in a in a in a super broad sense but even just as a cis woman who has an extreme disconnect between the idea of my body and my own self and the idea of fertility and ever wanting to be a mother, that that mm-hmm. is something yeah. that is 
is somewhat alienating and something that you, I have to find distance from. Yeah, it can be very exclusionary. And it's, it's difficult because on the one hand, like there is absolutely something to be said for reclaiming the parts of womanhood that have been so maligned in history and so abused. But also realizing that like, while there is a strength in reclaiming those things, not everyone is going to be comfortable or have a desire to reclaim them. And that's also okay. Mm -hmm. Gosh, this dang nuance, all this nuance everywhere. Yeah, anyway, so whatever your relationship to femininity is and whatever your gender might be, um, those two things don't have to have any relation to each other. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. You can be a mask individual and have a beautiful relationship with your femininity, or you can be a feminine assigned individual who does not associate at all with the practice of femininity, that's totally fine. Like whatever your situation is, the point of the triple goddess is <laughs> that there are different aspects to womanhood that are mm -hmm. all sort of uh, broadly marked as phases of a lifetime right. and uh, that there is a significance in each one of them and that together they all form a perfect picture. Like, so the idea would be in the most positive framing possible that, you know, it's not just young, beautiful women who mm -hmm. are valuable it's to the aspect of femininity. It's not just like... Uh, fertile mothers who are who are valuable but you know like it's and it's well it, yeah exactly it, it's a little bit uh like we talked about in the in the la Bifana episode like the divine grandmother it's a little bit of like yeah uh, absolutely. mother earth is often depicted as going through those phases and and going through them totally in eternum like like repeat because the mm -hmm. earth goes through spring summer fall winter going through every stage yeah of life. yeah and and we'll put content warnings on this too for um, oh, yes, of course. like extensive discussion of spiritual practice and, and, and paganism and what have you. But in addition to that, it's just pretty much every branch of faith that you look at has this idea of these like weird sort of coexisting phases because <laughs> this is weirdly relevant to our bizarre tangent at the beginning of the episode. Time's not real. Things don't necessarily happen in sequence in the way that we perceive of them with our earthly minds. For example, even if you are, um, you know, a practitioner of Catholicism, then you probably understand the Trinity. This is a very similar thing, where these are phases that happen in sequence in terms of like a human's life cycle, but they are all happening at the same time in terms of like the great experience of Gaia, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, just that time is a flat circle. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> and also not real. But but to talk more about the Banshee. Yes. Anyway, my original jumping off point for all of that is that the Banshee has a variety of animal forms as well. And there is a very famous sort of folktale about the Morrigan, which involves her giving chase to like uh, a young mischievous boy who stole some magical thing of hers. And basically he shapeshifts into a bunch of different animals and she keeps shapeshifting into different animals to pursue him. Um, so several of those animals show up in that tale. It's just sort of like mm -hmm. one of those you know, canonical tales of the Morrigan and several of those animals like the the hare and the crow, those are all animals that are associated with that story and also associated with mm -hmm. the Banshee. That was the entire oh, no, point of, of that. Sorry, I, t I took us. No, 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 I, I totally started it. So to get back to this thing about the owl, there's a little bit of interesting strangeness there. So I'm sure you've already guessed that the the keening of the banshee is often associated with the barn owl and the barn owl's because cry. Because the barn owl, as I've mentioned on this show before, screams like a human woman. Does sound horrifying, yes. And a lot of cryptids get associated to the barn owl to the point that it's one kind of a joke, like among cryptozoologists, um, just that anything is a barn owl, everything is a barn owl. Yeah, absolutely, everything's owls. Um, but in a lot of cases, there is this aspect to especially creatures that have a particularly strange cry to the barn owl. So 
it was an, at one point an ancient militaristic practice to use owls to like fly ahead and warn armies if there were like enemies on the horizon. They're the canary in the coal mine. So <laughs> kind of, yeah. Um, they're the owl on the battlefield. But you know, when nowadays when people are like, oh yeah, we'll use owl calls to signal each other. Like that's actually apparently a legit thing that armies did like way back when. They would just use actual owls to like call back to them. So there is already this association, right? If you were a soldier marching to war, like you would hate that sound. Mm -hmm. That sound would mean death. That sound means death. That sound means danger. Yeah, exactly. So if that's the sound of death, then you could see why that would sort of become uh, forever entwined in the cultural consciousness oh, with- I have chills right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In some stories of the Banshee and- um, there are a few different sources that have said this. Right now I'm looking at irelandseye.com, which has a really, really cool article on the Banshee, actually. But there are some stories that indicate that uh, the Banshee doesn't like to be looked at directly. So they're like, you would look, you would hear a Banshee, you would like go to look at it and pull open your curtain or whatever. You would see it and then she would vanish in a cloud of mist and you would hear the rustling of wings. Oh. So if you can kind of imagine, you know, maybe you hear something outside your window. It's the middle of the night. It's this terrifying keening sound. You throw open your curtains. You see what looks like a very pale face. And then it vanishes in a like fluster of white. And you hear the rustling of wings. And then that sound is just off in the distance. Like I can see why that would be so viscerally creepy. Oh, that's, that's, that's chilling. Yeah. And could also just be an owl. <laughs> and, it, and it absolutely could just be a barn owl. because And that right. was something else I was thinking too is... Um, Barn owls have these, and owls in general, I love owls. They're one of my favorite animals, but they have mm -hmm. these very dramatic faces. Oh, yeah. And they have these massive expressive eyes. And I can see how in the in like pitch blackness with just like the light of the moon above lighting up this face and seeing it in a blur of motion and when your heart is already racing, when you're already afraid and how like fear messes with your brain it messes with your memory it messes with your ability to take in information oh absolutely how your brain can read specifically the eyes as looking very human mm -hmm. yeah definitely and looking specifically not just human but i can see how certain owls you could see almost looking like human eyes with dark circles under them yeah for as sure if someone has been crying all night as if someone has been mourning as if a lot of like artistic depictions you see of banshees they look like exhausted, mm -hmm. which makes sense because they are out all night <laughs> keening about yeah, death. I mean, that's a and hard job. That's a hard job. It's a hard life. Um, but I, I just imagine uh, that. And, and that is such a beautiful, the word I gravitate for, but I understand that that's not maybe how everyone would think mm -hmm. of this. I just, um, the the mysterious, beautiful nature of, of owls and, and that and that scene that you've just described to me and how kind of close to something unimaginable that could make you feel I, I think is oh yeah the world is a completely different place in the middle of the night especially when you're not in a mm -hmm. position where you have electric lights available to you and light switches mm -hmm. um I spent a lot of time as a kid camping either in rustic cabins without electricity or just tent camping in the woods that was like a, a formative part of my growing up experience I basically came mm -hmm. of age in the middle of the woods and it was wonderful but like let me tell you no matter how much you love being out there, no matter how much, like, you spend all of your time in a civilization saying, like, I just want to get back out there. Like, something will wake you up in the middle of the night and you will fear for your life. 
<laughs> like it will happen just about every time. Even if there is no danger to you, just like sounds are magnified in weird ways and things like the veil is so much thinner. It's really, really fascinating. The places that your brain goes, you know? Mm -hmm. Let me see, I'm trying to decide where to go next. Let's talk about a few different um, Banshee encounters and then I'll start talking to you about the Leon and Sheet. Does that sound good? I would love that, yes. <laughs> cool. Um, so there are a few different popular accounts sort of throughout the history of the Banshee and I wanna try to visit a few of them. One popular account, this comes to, sorry, the source I'm looking at right now is mysteriousuniverse.org, which has a great source on the Banshees, um, but it is in turn citing a few other places, so I'll try to be as mindful of that as I can. This isn't a popular account that was mentioned in the book True Irish Ghost Stories. This story supposedly occurred back in the early 1900s when a member of a family in Cork told of how her esteemed family had been plagued by a banshee. She says, My mother, when a young girl, was standing looking out of the window in their house at Blackrock near Cork. She suddenly saw a white figure standing on a bridge which was easily visible from the house. The figure waved her arms towards the house and my mother heard the bitter wailing of the banshee. It lasted some seconds and then the figure disappeared. Next morning, my grandfather was walking as usual into the city of Cork. He accidentally fell, hit his head against the curbstone and never recovered consciousness. In March 1900, my mother was very ill and one evening the nurse and I were with her arranging her bed. We suddenly heard the most extraordinary wailing, which seemed to come in waves round and under her bed. We naturally looked everywhere to try and find the cause, but in vain. The nurse and I looked at one another, but made no remark, as my mother did not seem to hear it. My sister was downstairs sitting with my father. She heard it and thought some terrible thing had happened to her little boy who was in bed upstairs. She rushed up and found him sleeping quietly. My father did not hear it. In the house next door, they heard it and ran downstairs thinking something had happened to the servant. But the latter at once said to them, Did you hear the banshee? The missus must be dying. So there are some wild things we can pick up from this. Um, one, it seems to be that primarily women can hear the banshee to begin with, at least in these accounts. Yes. And, and that the person and affected the person it's can't hear for. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is such a fascinating and creepy thing. And, and also makes a strange kind of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, that person doesn't need a warning right? Yeah, like, I know. It's so weird. It's, the warning isn't for them. And if this is really just like, <laughs> for all of my talk about time not being real, there is an interesting school of thought on some like ghost stories that it's not like the persistence of something after death. It's that like they're going through the motions of their own thing and time is just like overlapped on itself. You know what I mean? So mm. if this is an instance of like, this person is mourning someone's death, the death just hasn't happened for that person yet like, then they wouldn't hear it because in the time that the morning would be happening, they would already be dead. You know what I mean? Like, does that make any sense at all? No, yeah, of course. No, it does. It does make sense. And also, this takes me to a, a thing, and, and I'm sure we've talked about this before, but I, I take umbrage to the depiction of the Banshee as being scary. And I don't mean that death isn't scary. I don't mean that loss isn't frightening. I mean that... The Banshee as a monster? The Banshee is not a monster. The Banshee is providing She's... a public service, and people just don't like what she has to say. <laughs> as someone who works in municipal government, I get that. <laughs> and and also just on sort of a, like an emotional level, and I'm, I'm having just, I, I do this, I have strange, strong emotional responses to some of these. She, not only is she trying to warn or, or providing a warning to the family that something horrible is coming, she's... She's grieving with you. She's grieving for you. She... Well, especially if you consider the fact that the Banshee only, like, 
has ties to specific families, like that that's a member of that family. Yes. That's um oh, I'm I'm I don't know where this I'm it's fine. Uh but I'm just imagining like the idea of a creature that exists to cry for what is about to be lost and specifically staying if there is imagine there is just one mm-hmm. or imagine there is just a handful staying with this family and just watching them for hundreds of years yeah. wa- watching them encounter loss and, and tragedy and sadness and and that isn't scary to me it's breaks my heart it's deeply sad yeah and so i think uh the banshee yeah she's obviously and this happens a lot in in folklore with things that are harbingers of death or harbingers Mm -hmm. of misfortune is that they become associated with the misfortune almost as if it is it is their fault it's super not and that oh and that makes me just get i'm getting into like some really weird emotional stuff but then i'm thinking about like i'm thinking about like you talked about seers of old, and I'm thinking about oracles. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about Cassandra. Oh my god, so in sad Greek mythology. Um, and that's an important thing to make. Actually, that's an important distinction to make. There mm-hmm. is, I'm sure, there are, are forms where it's believed that hearing the banshee is what kills the person, and that is not true. Basically, like mm-hmm. if a banshee cries, that's unavoidable. And that's a whole other thing we could get into, mm-hmm. right? Is this idea of like, you know, if you know about the future, can you change it? The banshee, like the banshee cry does not doom a person to death. Like plugging up your ears with wax will not save you from what the banshee has to tell you. It mm-hmm. it just means you won't hear. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um here's one more account. <laughs> and this one kind right. of disproves the idea that only women could hear it. Um although, you know, I'm not a fan of, like, gender bias in cryptids anyway, but uh, this account comes from 1894 and uh, refers to the odd experience of a boy at a boarding school. A few years ago, a curious incident occurred in a public school in connection with the belief in the banshee. One of the boys, happening to become ill, was at once placed in a room by himself where he used to sit all day. On one occasion, as he was being visited by the doctor, he suddenly started up from his seat and affirmed that he heard somebody crying. The doctor, of course, who could hear or see nothing, came to the conclusion that the illness had slightly affected his brain. However, the boy, who appeared quite sensible, still persisted that he heard someone crying, and furthermore said, It is the banshee, as I have heard it before. The following morning, the headmaster received a telegram saying that the boy's brother had been accidentally shot dead. Oh my god. There are a few others, but um, before... Anyway, well, I'll leave some of them for, for other people to find. You can find this article, actually. It's from 2019. Um, it's titled Bizarre Encounters with Real Banshees, and it's on MysteriousUniverse.org. But I really want to talk about the um, the Lenin she. Yes, please. So I almost forgot. Uh, so the Banshee is someone who warns of things to come and is no way responsible for the outcome of those things. She is a fairy woman who is tied to a specific family and wails about the approach of death. She has a sister named the Laninshi or the Lianinshi, and the Lianinshi's job primarily is that she um, seduces human men, feeds on their life force, and then goes on to the next one. (laughs) That's kind of her whole deal. But there's a really interesting article about the Laninshi and the idea of like artistic muse and a very real historical precedent of the... um, the phenomenon of ghost writing, not as in the current understanding of that word. <sighs> no, you I know exactly, exactly what I mean. What and that is a really interesting jumping off point into a discussion about like 
femininity in writing and like the ways in which women were allowed to contribute to the canon by pretending to be having like the throes of a supernatural experience, which is wild. But we're going to talk a little bit about the about the Leanne and she. Please, as I'm, you know me so well. So I'm sure that you are familiar I'm, with William William Butler Yeats of literary yes. fame. He is actually sort of the focal point of this article in a really interesting way. So I'm going to skip past some of the introduction of this article. This is from the Irish Times, and it was from um, October 30th of 2019. It's a really cool article. But the Lennon she has sort of an interesting place in pop culture. She occupies this position of being both a figure on her own with her own lore that sort of stands behind her, but she also is very frequently sort of a, a metaphorical stand-in for the idea of um, unrequited love or of like all-consuming love or this idea of what well, the article that goes on to sort of associate with like artistic muse, you know, when you have someone who is, and this is usually poets, I'm sorry, I don't mean to stereotype, but poets who are like so encapsulated, so like enraptured with the idea of a woman that the very thought of her consumes them. Like that aspect of romanticism is embodied by the Lenin she. She sort of uh, becomes a simile for it. There's a very famous line in a, a song called My Log and Love, which you may have heard. I don't know if Celtic Woman has done it. I know that um, Celtic Thunder has done it. Uh, so has John McCormick, Dusty Springfield, Van Morrison. Like, it's popular. It's been covered. And there right. is a stanza in it that goes, And like a lovesick Lennon she, she hath my heart in a thrall. No life I have, nor liberty, for love is lord of all which is a beautiful romantic ballad, but it's also kind of creepy, right? <laughs> Very creepy. Anyway, there is a definition by William Butler Yeats of the Lan and Shi, which casts her as a sort of vampire. He says, The Lan and Shi seeks the love of mortals. If they refuse, she must be their slave. If they consent, they are hers and can only escape by finding another to take their place. The fairy lives on their life and they waste away. Death is oh no escape God. from her. She is the Gaelic muse, for she gives inspiration to those she persecutes. The Gaelic poets die young, for she is restless and will not let them remain long on earth. So there's this kind of weird idea of like almost the 27 Club, but it's just like a group of people who are all sharing the same fairy ex-girlfriend. <laughs> yes, there's this... I'm fascinated by her. Oh my god. Okay. So William Butler Yeats himself was um, a good example. He was particularly vulnerable to the idea of doomed love affairs. He himself had several. He had um, paramours, which caused him to write constantly about this unattainable log in love situation. Uh, and he made his own share of very bad decisions. But at age 52, he married someone who, um, her name was Georgie Hyde Lees. He married her in 1917, and he was at the time 52. So he was almost twice his bride's age, which is a whole other thing, and like, Yates, chill, dude. But, mm, yeah, <laughs> here's the interesting thing. She became sort of like the most famous and influential of his muses throughout the course of his writing career. And there's a wild story surrounding that. So around Halloween, Yates recalls, 
On the afternoon of October 24th, 1917, four days after my marriage, my wife surprised me by attempting automatic writing. Now, Addison, do you know what automatic writing is? Automatic writing, it's sort of um, an almost a precursor to like a Ouija mm -hmm. folder, almost a precursor to that sort of practice of uh, spirit contacting. And it's essentially where you slacken your hand and you close your eyes and you place your hand on paper with a pencil or a pen in it and you allow whatever is moving you, a spirit, to move you and move the pen for you. And whatever comes out of it, that is the spirit talking through you and causing you right. to write. So if you just want to read Yates's words on it, his account is interesting, but um, I will not be able to refrain from commentating a little bit because listen to this. This was four days after they got married, right? So mm -hmm. my wife surprised me by attempting automatic writing. What came in disjointed sentences and almost illegible writing was so exciting, sometimes so profound that I persuaded her to give an hour or two day after day to the unknown writer. So they've been married four days and he is so blown away by what she suddenly channels that he's like, you have to spend like an hour or two every day, like letting this ghost write. This is so great, Georgie. Do you know what the ghost was writing about? What? <laughs> The mysterious outpourings, this article says, included advice on how her husband should concentrate on his current relationship, improve his sexual technique, and start a family. <laughs> oh, but, but even if this began as just like a tactic for her to be like, all right, this is the only way I can get my husband to listen to me, which apparently worked, she like was really good at it. Because by the end of this experiment, she had 3,600 pages, which Yates then retouched and published as a book. Oh my god. Yeah, right? So, like, this woman was like, oh, I'm having ghost writing syndrome. I gotta get this down. And Yates is like, this is remarkable. The muse has seized her and given me wonderful advice on how to make our love flourish. <laughs> which is, like, mind-blowingly great. But anyway, basically, um, this, like, inspiration and this, like, artistic thrall that this had him in, like, he was so fascinated by it that it's only in, like, 1917 and after that he started doing all of the work that made him famous. So, basically, William Butler Yeats became famous because he married a young woman who had, like, seance writing sessions that told him what to do. <laughs> Oh my god, I, I love her. <laughs> I know, it's phenomenal. And there's this whole thing about like, so that's where the term like ghost writing sort of originates, I think, is this idea that like, you would have a woman usually who would be quote unquote seized by a ghost. And then what was written there would be published under the name of the person recording the communications who was typically a man. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, yeah. Or attributed to the supernatural entity that was supposedly channeled. But the writing, you know, not to disgrace the good intention of all of the ghosts who wanted to continue their writing careers past their death, because nothing but respect to you, but I do believe at least some of those women were in fact writing their own material. I think so. Yeah, I should think so. But it's so fascinating because I just loved the way that this article painted the relationship between like the idea of the Lanenshi of this like muse who is all encompassing and enrapturing and enthralling and like the divine feminine and like the very real practice of women who were probably just like, listen, if that's how I got to get this dude to publish my book, <laughs> then uh, like, I'll do what sure. I got to do. Yeah. And so it's, it's fascinating, this idea of like how willing, like how ready and willing to romanticize 
like female spiritual power these dudes were, but like tell totally unwilling they were to recognize like, no, my wife's just a good writer. Yeah. And just also how unwilling they are to give her agency in that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, also find it unbelievably funny that his wife of four days was like, no, the ghost is telling me to tell you. <laughs> no, four that days. You need to get better at sex. Four days. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. The ghost is telling me to tell you that you need to stop having affairs and get better at sex Mm -hmm. and that we need to have a baby. (laughs) I know. Like, really? Honestly? Um, We stand a legend. I love her. I love her. (laughs) She's phenomenal. That is so powerful. Yeah. Georgie was just excellent. Truly. Truly iconic. Also, we're approaching truly the end of this conversation, um, but I wanted to say, like, if it's something you would be interested in or just anyone would be interested in, I would really enjoy perhaps doing a bonus episode or something where we dive a little more into the Lennon she. Oh, yeah, I would love to. I have a lot of thoughts about her and, and particularly just a final kind of thought. You mentioned, like, she is obsessed with winning the love of humans, mm-hmm. right? Yes. And, and specifically, the thing that struck me so much when you were just talking about that is that if she is refused, then she is then bound to that person yeah. as a servant in the opposite way of, of what her like other dynamic would be. And there's something very interesting and very sad about that because obviously I'm not saying it's okay to imprison men and drain their life force from them, whatever. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. Don't at me. Huh. But there's something very interesting to me that adds an extra level beyond the like evil seductress kind of figure that she knows going in that if she mm-hmm. is unable to win their heart and, and still pursues him at them and makes herself vulnerable that it will trap her. Yeah. It's really fascinating. There's um, cryptids like this are always really interesting to me because in case you didn't gather this from the rest of the episode, I spend a lot of time thinking um, partially because, you know, I took a lot of upper level college English classes, partially because it's who I am as a person and partially because of my own relationship to gender identity. Like there is a lot of complication and nuance surrounding the ideas of like how we interpret and assign meaningful notions of gender throughout history and literature and mythology and folklore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also something really beautiful about finding strength and subversion in those, you know? So like, Mm -hmm. there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, there are some cryptids like unicorns will only appear to women or like the banshee could only be heard by females. And it's like, okay, that's, I don't, I don't love that. It's not Mm-hmm. Like, th- th- we should get over that anyway. But I do still think that there's a lot of value to be had by analyzing and considering, like, what are the ways in which these female aspects were demonized just for being feminine? Mm-hmm. Like, what are some ways in which the sad lives that women had to leave by lead by necessity became canonized as ghost stories? Like, there are some really mm-hmm. interesting conversations there to be had and a lot of really beautiful nuance to be found in between those lines. And I think that it's something that is absolutely well worth exploring. I would love to do a bonus episode on the Lennon She. I think that there's a lot more information to sort of figure out there and I would love to have that conversation. I would like that very much. And 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 as of uh, jumping off of what you just said, I also have to, like anytime this conversation comes up, I have to uh, admit to my personal stake in it, which is just, I... Like, it's well known. I, I'm a very much 
in, entrenched in the horror genre. That is my that is my bread and butter. It's where I live. It's where I thrive. And I am so drawn to and so enamored with and so captured by women as monsters or as figures of fear and and in mythology and folklore. And it there's something very special to me about them and about and anytime we get to talk about one Mm -hmm. of them it makes me it feels like it feels like coming home yeah I (laughs) and I and I and I it would take it would take me a lot longer to really fully articulate what it is about it but I think a lot of other a lot of people feel the same way but it's I I want to see and I want to I want to dig my my teeth in my I want to sink my teeth into like just dive dig pull at the soil and dig down deep into the the earth below and and learn about where did these these like tropes of of like mm. evil women come from and where did these these things that we demonize about about women historically come from and on so often so so often i talked about this with women and why i talk about it on here it, it's it's so <laughs> tied to less like bad things that women have done and more into things that have been a result of like this uh, almost like collective passed down trauma mm-hmm. and the, and and the ways in which specifically like historically women have this like tradition of pain and this tradition of being carriers of these various types of suffering and these various things that are uncomfortable and people want to look away from and want to avoid yeah. and how that becomes canonized into monsters and what I'm saying is I it was absolutely a pleasure to revisit the Banshee and also I want to talk more about her sister. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you for sitting through another another take <laughs> at it, another run at this one. Um it was a distinctly different energy and I have to say I really, really enjoyed the experience. So thank you for sharing it with me. Of course. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So <laughs> I'm like, oh right, I have to run <laughs> So uh, I haven't plugged our various platforms in a hot second i often forget to do that i'm very bad at i'm very bad at ending a podcast episode i understand (laughs) you can uh you can find us uh as a show you can find us online on twitter we are at crypt keep pod that's c-r-y-p-t-k-e-e-p-p-o-d we are on facebook under the cryptid keeper uh we also have a facebook group the cryptid keeper appreciation group that is kind of a fun space often for discussion and conversation and just a lot of pictures of people's pets and that's a fun space to hang out in. You can email us at cryptkeeppod at gmail.com. Again, spelled the same as our Twitter, C-R-Y-P-T-K-E-E-P-P-O-D. And also, I haven't said this in a hot minute, but like something that really benefits the show if you want to get us in more ears, if you are a fan of the show and you enjoy it and want to get us in more ears, is you can uh, just pop us a... Uh, a nice rating and review on iTunes. If that, if you are so moved, I would never ask you to do so if you don't believe it. And if you hate the show, <laughs> then maybe just keep that to yourself. No, <laughs> or actually, if you have a genuine, a genuine critique, like tweet it at me because I'm much more likely to see it than I am to read uh, iTunes reviews. But Oof, mood. Uh, in in all seriousness, if if you did want to boost the show in in some capacity, that does super help. Uh, and. Also, if you are inclined to support us financially, I know that like honestly. Things are really hard right now, and it feels weird to even ask for financial support for a podcast. But if you decided you wanted to toss like a dollar or something our way, you can do so um, on our Patreon. And that is uh, under the Cryptic Keeper. And I will say that we don't draw like we're this is not our job. Like we both have separate careers. This is so all the costs that go into the Patreon go right back out to the people that we're working with to expenses to make the show better and just to uh, the folks that help us make the show. 
So thank you for that. If you have supported in that way, uh, it is very much appreciated. And if you can't, obviously that's also perfectly fine and understandable. And uh, we appreciate all forms of support, no matter what, no matter what shape they take, be that word of mouth, be that an iTunes rating, be that just listening every week and being willing to come play in this space with us and have these conversations. And entering 2020, it's a scary world so far, but we're all still here together. And I would like to hope that maybe as a community, we can try to make things better for each other in the coming year. Yeah. And uh, that turned into sort of a monologue, but... I loved it. Thank you. So as always, friends, we hope we can keep you around and stay safe out there. Studio. Pretty, witty, and gay.